what we do here, what is really, I think, the most important part of our program, is finding out what God's will is for us and doing it. And if we find it out and we do it, then our eye is on that, not on how we look or how we appear or what people think of us or whether we lost enough weight or whether the people are going to think we look good in this size dress or that size suit or how should I eat or what I should eat, what should I eat or what shouldn't I eat. <coughs> but if we direct our eye on, into what God's will is for us, what happens? Instead of living a life of anxiety and despair, of wondering what should I do being in anxiety, and am I doing it right, and am I doing it enough, or am I doing it too much? Or the despair, which ultimately always follows, screwed up again, I'm not thin enough, I put on some weight, this doesn't fit right, what are they going to think? What am I going to think? What is this? What is that? That's what's going to govern our lives. And we will constantly be filled with, with anxiety and despair and in plain language, we're just not going to feel well. And then, what do we do? We do things to perpetuate anxiety and despair. We overeat, we feel anxiety and despair. Then we get on a diet, we feel anxiety and despair. Then we overeat, and we get on anxiety and despair. Whatever it is, it's a constant syndrome that goes around. Contrast this, he said, with a person who says, the hell with that, I ain't going to worry about that. I'm going to direct my attention, my life, my inner life, the inner manifestation into a different perspective. If I do those things and feel bad, what comes first? Since I've always felt bad and the behavior constantly changes, rather than worry about the behavior, why don't I learn how to feel good? If your eye is on your relationship with God, you feel good. An incredible thing happened soon after this book was written. <coughs> Not only did Emmett Fox come to this conclusion about that time, but also um, it was being discovered not, in the, not only in the theological sense, but in the psychological sense. About that time, Freud's theories were becoming into modern usage. And um, a contemporary of Freud by the name of uh, Carl Jung came upon a little different theory. He said that there was that the problem with people is not that they are mentally sick, but that they are spiritually empty. We're not dealing with sickness, although we like to use it. Freud was a doctor. And he dealt with things as doctors deal with things. Not right, not wrong, it's just the way it is. I think it's unfortunate for us, many years later, that the first person to deal with the psychology of the brain was a medical doctor. <coughs> it's interesting to note that in Freud's inner circle of psychoanalysts that he formed and that developed in Vienna, where he lived at that time, the first person to become a psychoanalyst who was not a medical doctor was a man who was the first one to talk about 
the inner emptiness because he didn't have this background of medical uh, of being a medical doctor and young even though he was a medical doctor was able to pick it up too and he said there was a spiritual emptiness and this emptiness can only be filled three ways he said it could be filled uh, by an act of grace you know what an act of grace is you know you're standing around one day and there's a bolt of lightning and a Brink's truck goes by and out falls a bag of money. <laughs> and that's a grace, you know. <laughs> Great Schwartz in the back of the truck threw it out, you know. <laughs> Things happen. Sometimes people spontaneously change. Uh, one day they're this, the next day they're that. It happens. One day somebody's dying of cancer, the next day it's in remission. We don't know why. And we just say, it's an act of grace. You know, God stepped in and who knows what. He said there's a second way. And he called the second way a, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, an ability to reach a level of, of insight, a different insight. We have a, a word that's used, it's called a paradigmatic shift. You reach a paradigm, it's another level of awareness. People who live in the common knowledge and awareness and <coughs> inner workings, uh, all of a sudden, through education usually, they read things, they start thinking, and they think beyond the norm. And through this different this paradigm, they're able to expand their mind into another level of awareness. That usually takes a great deal of time, effort, insight, and education, which many of us don't have the time for. And even if we had the time for it, we, we wouldn't know how to do it. And even if we had to do it, it's a lot of work and boring. He said there's a third way. And he said this is through a loving relationship. He said somehow, we, through a loving relationship, people change. It seems strange. Just because you have a loving relationship you change and uh, in the early 1930s I think it was something happened to prove it <coughs> it's related in the big book where in a story is told about a man named Roland who went to uh, uh, Vienna uh, to uh, Switzerland to uh, see Dr. Young because he was an alcoholic and he just had been to every place and tried everything and what happened uh, was that he had lost all hope and he went to finally see Dr. Young, who was one of the world's great psychiatrists. And Dr. Young examined him and the, the, this alcoholic said, well, you know, what about it? And he said, uh, and I could just visualize Young sitting there going like this, you know, shaking the head. You ever go to the doctor and say, doctor, I got a little pain here. He examines, he examines it and he comes out and he looks at, looking at the x-ray. Come on, what do I have? You know, and the doctor says you got a pain in the back. You know, <laughs> very wisely. Well, Doctor Young said something to this man, which uh, in a way was like that. He said to him, "You have the mind of the chronic alcoholic." And the guy said, "You're not telling me anything I don't know." And he said, "Also, he says I've never seen one single case recover where the state of mind exists to the extent that it does in you." It's 
like telling a person, you know, you got cancer through the body, and you're just not going to recover. And the man just, uh, he, as he relates it, he says it was this, as if the gates of hell had shut on him. <coughs> and he said, there's no hope for me. And Dr. Young said, well, uh, there's very little hope for you. He says, however, every once in a while, he says, something happened, what, very rarely. And he described this rarity as a phenomena, an act of grace. He says, every once in a while, a phenomena occurs. People who have the state of mind like you have what he calls, Dr. Young says, they have what I call a vital spiritual experience. And he described this because we would, if somebody said to us, well, yeah, you know, you have this, but what you have to have is a vital spiritual experience. And you say, well, where's the nearest church or synagogue or Buddhist temple? It makes no difference. I'll go there, you know. And he says, no, no, it's not that. It's not a religious thing. It's totally different. And he said, let me explain it to you. It appears to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. And Roland said, well, what's an emotional displacement and rearrangement? Those are big words. He said, well, let me be clearer. He says, ideas, emotions, and attitudes. You know what ideas are. You know what emotions are. You know what attitudes are. He says, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side. <coughs> and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes are cast to one side. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. That's what a spiritual experience is. Notice, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, conceptions and motives. Nothing is mentioned about behavior. He didn't say they start to behave differently. He says they have a spiritual experience, which means, in plain language, they begin to think differently. And when they begin to think differently, they begin to feel differently. And when they begin to feel differently, the behavior that was the result of the way they used to think and feel, they just don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's not because it's right or wrong. It's because one doesn't do anything unless they think and feel about doing it. And when you don't think about... Now, think a second. When you think about, when you feel like you've got to go to the bathroom, you think about what to do, you know, and you go to the bathroom. But when you don't think and feel like going to the bathroom, you just don't go to the bathroom. <laughs> Somebody says, what are you doing? She says, I don't know, I just thought I'd go to the bathroom, you know. <laughs> you just don't do those things unless you feel something and you think about it. We learn as little children, we have a feeling. And then you wet your diaper, and after a while, you know, your parent says, no, I want you to think about this now. When you, when you feel like you've got to go to the bathroom, instead of just going, there's the bathroom. You go in there, and you sit on the potty. And we learn, when we have a feeling, how to deal with it in a different way. We're still wetting our pants. 
That's the way to do it. We feel and we just go the way we always win. Gee, I feel like eating, Ali, regardless of the consequences. Or I have to deal with this uncomfortable feeling, Ali. I'll do this, I'll do that. That's what we're doing. And we know that big people go to bathrooms and we say, those are for big people, you know. <laughs> I'm not a big person, you know. We think we're still little children and it's okay to do that. As a matter of fact, when people look at us very weird, like, that's why we wear our pants, so they look at us weird. <laughs> Except we don't wear our pants, but we do something else just as ridiculous. We compulsively eat. No different. We get a feeling. And we say, I can't control a feeling. Who tells you to control a feeling? It's just all about the behavior. Think differently. That's all. So you start to think differently. Well, Dr. Young said that people who have this state of mind, he didn't care about the behavior, he called it a state of mind. He didn't say people who drink a lot, or people who have this allergy or addiction to alcohol, which is people who think like you do. How do people think? How was what he talking about? And I hear so much uh, people talking about, um, in AA especially, you know, the addiction to alcohol. They got an allergy to alcohol and all this kind of stuff. And of course, a lot of people <coughs> in OA think they have an allergy uh, to uh, flour and sugar. And it's really very interesting because if you'll ever talk to an allergist, somebody who really is a food allergist, they will tell you that there is almost any kind of food, in fact, probably every kind of food you could be allergic to except sugar. Sugar is the one food that you cannot be allergic to. So, uh, so much for that. However, let's assume that you're allergic to it, you know, or you're addicted to it, or you like it a lot, and I think that's why people eat sugar. It tastes good. Did you ever hear of anybody binging on asparagus? <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, maybe you like asparagus, I don't know, but I don't find people going down in the middle of the night or driving into the 7-Eleven and saying, give me a bunch of asparagus. You eat sugar because the body needs sugar. God created us with a craving, a, a need for sugar because we can't live without it. We need insulin in the body. We need this to survive. So we have these needs of salt and, and proteins and stuff like that. We get taste, craving, because God gave it to us. Certain things taste better than others. And if we eat it a lot and we use it a lot, we get we like the taste of it. Our taste is what we call receptors in the mouth, and we have receptors all the way down into the esophagus. That's why we like to swallow and chew and taste it and feel it going down because you have a taste bud, as we call it, all the way down into the esophagus. So it tastes good. And when people live a life where very few things are good, we go to what is good, and those things are good. But anyhow, besides that, Dr. Young talked about the state of mind. And what is the state of mind? It was, uh, uh, I read an article several years ago by a, uh, one of the experts in the world on alcoholism who was asked in the article, are alcoholics addicted to, you know, do they have this uh, allergy or addiction to alcohol? And he said, no, he don't know. It really isn't that important. He said, uh, some say yes, some say no. He says, it really, the point is not <coughs> whether or not they're addicted to it or like it or use it or whatever it is. The point is, Knowing the effect that alcohol has on them, they still drink. 
The problem is not what happens when you take sugar. The problem is believing that what's going to happen, why do you do it in the first place? The alcohol, knowing the effect alcohol has on their body, why do they do it? It is not, the effect is not the physical problem. It is believing that there is a physical problem. Why the hell do you do it? Why do we eat? And we know exactly what's going to happen, how we're going to hate what's going to happen. Why do we do it? Because we have a state of mind. And he says, if the problem in dealing with alcohol is to get the alcoholic to say no. To the first, see, the big book says there's no defense against that first drink. Forget about the second one. Once you take the first drink, there's no defense. So the question is, the thing to do is not take the first drink. But they drink anyhow, knowing what's going to happen. We eat anyhow, knowing what's going to happen. So how do we get the mind to change? <coughs> he describes the change. He calls the change a spiritual experience. And the word spiritual is defined also in the dictionary as a way of thinking and feeling. So one has a spiritual, a new spiritual awakening. That is, they begin to think and feel differently. And that's all our program is for. It's to teach us how to think and feel differently. Now he said that there were three ways through this great educational experience, paradigm, through a spontaneous combustion, you know, an act of grace, or through a loving friend. Now, when Roland came back to the United States, <coughs> he found a loving friend, a person by the name of Abby, and he shared it with him, and in the process of sharing, he stopped drinking. And Abby found this stockbroker who was a terrible drunk and he shared it with him and Bill Wilson stopped drinking and one day Bill Wilson was standing in the, in the lobby of a hotel in Akron, Ohio and it was, a, it was a day that he was lonely and alone and he heard the noise coming from the bar and all the fun and frivolity going on there <coughs> and uh, he said to himself uh, God I can go in there and I'm so bored I'm so lonely so empty. Yeah, just go in there and sit down and you know, just talk to him. One drink. And he thought about how he was beginning to feel and how his mind thought differently. And he said, how can I fill myself up without going in there and filling myself up with alcohol and people sitting at the bar? And he remembered what Dr. Young told, it, uh, told Roland and what Roland told Evie and what Evie told him. And he saw the church directory, and he called up, and he said, where can I find a drunk in this town? And somebody turned him on to a doctor by the name of uh, uh, Bill Smith. I mean, uh, uh, Bob Smith. And he went and found Dr. Bob, who was uh, about two sheets to the wind and uh, uh, hadn't been sued for malpractice yet by some miracle. They didn't sue in those days. And uh, he talked to him. And they shared that day. And that day, Dr. Bob Smith stopped drinking, never to drink again. And that is the day, in July 1935, that AA was born. AA celebrates 50 years this July. 
But it's not 50 years since Bill Wilson stopped drinking because his program did not begin when he stopped drinking. AA began when one drunk helped another. When one person met another person and they didn't even know each other beforehand and they gave to each other the greatest gift that mankind had, a helping hand. In that process, both of them had a spiritual experience. They both stopped drinking that day for the day, one day, and it was to last forever. AA begins, began when one drunk helped another. Our program begins not when we go on a food plan or a diet or when we go to our first meeting. Our program begins the first time we extend ourselves to somebody else because at that moment we are engaging in the one thing that we're able to do that Dr. Young described through a loving friendship. I learned a long time ago through lots of people and through this program the simple truth a loving friend can cure anything. It is the greatest gift God has given mankind. Only human beings have that ability. Only human beings will, will stop at the side of a road on a rainy or snowy day and help somebody even though they're in a, a trouble. Why? Why do they do it? Because uh, it's right. They do it because they're human. And when they drive away from there 20 or 30 minutes later, late for their appointment, they feel good about themselves. I have never ever known anybody to eat under those circumstances. I have never known anybody to compulsively eat or drink or use or engage in any insane behavior after they've helped somebody else or after being helped. It is the greatest experience and our total, the total purpose of our program is to carry this message to others. And the, the steps are set up in this divine way in the stages of seeing what our problem is, which is getting in tune with God's will. The first, the first three steps, which are understanding what God is and how he works in our lives. Steps four through nine, which are the steps which enable us to do what God's will is for us. Steps 10, 11, and 12, which are the steps in which we live each day in practicing God's will. And the God, what is God's will for us? To choose to share with others, to be with others, to extend the hand with others. And a certain thing happens. In that way, we get to feel good. Feel good. Not terrific, not wonderful, but just feel good. Remember what I said in the beginning. We came here not to lose weight, but to, fit, but to, to feel the way we thought losing weight would make us feel. We get to feel good. It doesn't work. This does. And if the purpose of being fat is to fill us up with the only way we know how, anxiety and despair, which always results in us being fat or whatever, if we get filled up with doing what is God's will, that is giving of ourselves to others and allowing others to share with us, and if we feel good about that, then we don't need this behavior called compulsive eating to fill us up. Then what happens? Stop compulsively eating. 
just so simple. The problem has been removed. And what is, how do we, we approach this is the key to it. I know uh, we shared a few of us last night and we talked a lot about coming to meetings and dealing with newcomers and being a newcomer. And the problem, I think, for most of us is that when we walk into our first meeting, nobody tells us what it is. Nobody says what's going on. They do what I saw in my first meeting. They give these cliches. Somebody gets up and they say, I lost 200 pounds, but I didn't do it. God did it. Well, God took the weight off. Why did he put it on in the first place? There's some meaning or a lesson to it. I can do without that lesson. I mean, and, and why did I have to go through this? Was there some pain? And I can even understand it as an adult because I've been a terrible person. Maybe that's God punishing me or something like that. But what was the problem when I was a kid? Why did I have to go through pain as a child? What did I do wrong then? I didn't understand it. I didn't understand these cliches which were their ways of saying, I don't know why, so I'll give you this, you know. They threw these things out, and they would make those statements. And you go to most of your OA meetings, and that's what they give you. They give you some pamphlets which you read over, and which really deal with the same thing that they've always dealt with, only they, they you should pardon the expression, sugarcoat it. They don't call it a diet, they call it a food plan. Instead of going to the doctor and getting the shot, you go to the doctor sponsor, food sponsor, who fixes you up, who becomes the alter ego of the war going on in your head. You want it to you want to feel bad, get a sponsor. They'll help you along anytime you want. <laughs> you know. Most sponsors are very very willing to point out what's wrong with your life. As long as they're pointing out what's wrong with your life, they don't have to deal with their life. <laughs> they uh, They deal with uh, the problem of what's going on at meetings in a very simple way because we don't understand it and nobody wants to give of themselves. And of course, then somebody will come along and tell you, go through the steps, the steps, all well and good, except the big book tells us that we're not ready to take these steps just like that. It's a sort of a prerequisite to taking the steps. It says <coughs> in the big book, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lanes to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Does anybody ever get up and tell you what they have? Or they'll tell you they have weight loss and, quote, abstinence. Is that what we have? Then why do we use the A program? Because what they have is not not drinking. What they have is more to that. When I sponsor people or when the people come to me and they want to be sponsored, I'll say, why are you here? Why me? And somehow they think that if they came to me because I'm around longer or say it uh, a little better or talk more, that they're going to get it easier. And it's not so. And I'll, I'll say, what is it that I have that you want. You know, that's hard to say to somebody that's come in with a lot of low self-esteem because we never acknowledge we've got anything. Oh, it's easy to say, I lost X pounds 
and kept it off for X years. But to say, you know, I'm a good person, and that's what you want. Uh, I'm an honest person, that's what you want. I'm a kind person, that's what you want. I love and care about people, that's what you want. I have serenity and calmness in my life, that's what you want. I am recovered, that's what you want. We find it so difficult to acknowledge the things that we have. So often I hear people talk about themselves and they will say, I'm recovering. They will never say they're recovered. It's because they don't want to. It's like, God forbid I should say it, maybe you know, they're going to, people are going to think I'm egotistical. You know, it's okay to say I lost weight because I can always put it back on. <laughs> but if I say I'm recovered, then I have to be perfect. And they're going to say, well, you're not perfect, so how can you be recovered? And the truth is, recovered people are people who don't care about being perfect. It's okay not to be perfect. That's about what's perfect about recovered people is they're perfectly imperfect. They understand that God gave us tools, and he, if we were supposed to be perfect, he wouldn't give us the tools. He'd just make us perfect. And I'll tell you who was perfect. Adam and Eve was perfect. They were just like, the animals are perfect. They do what they're supposed to do. They're very natural and they do it. And human beings were just another class of animals at one time. Until God said, this is different. These animals, these two mammals, man and woman, <coughs> are a little different. And I'm going to give them something that I'm not going to give any other creature that I created of the billions of life forms that God has created, human beings are, are unique and totally different because God gave us the only thing that He is distinct from. God is distinct from everything else because God is a creator. He creates from nothing. He created man and the world. And He said, I'm going to give to mankind me that he gave to human beings himself and each one of us resides a god a part of god and how do we, what is that part it is the, the ability to create the ability to choose only human beings of all the life forms that exist from the single cell molecule to the most complex organism only we could feel like doing something and not do it. Only we could feel like not doing something and do it because it's right to do it. Only we could feel like killing and not kill. Only we can feel anger and turn it into love. Only we could feel like drinking and say, no, when I drink, it affects my body or whatever. Only we could feel like eating and say, no, I'm going to feel my pain and go through it. I'm not going to eat. This unique God-given quality that separates us from any conglomeration of atoms and molecules, and after all, what are we except a different form of atoms and molecules? Except for that unique quality. The quality that only God and man have. The ability to create. We can create out of nothingness a feeling a different feeling. And what have we been? The obsessive compulsive person 
the person we have been, the person who says, I cannot stop eating, is a person devoid of God's power. And a recovered person is one who is in God's power. A recovered person is one who is in tune with that which God gave us all. The big book says our problem is not drinking, our problem is lack of power. And the purpose of this program is to enable you to find a power by which you can what the steps are for. And I was told when I went when I went to go through these steps that going through these steps is a waste of time if you're not ready. And he, this, this fellow kept on saying to me, what is it that I have that you want? And I say that to people who come to me, what is it that I have that you want? And he said, it's my power that you want. You can't have mine, but you'll find yours. And in truth, that's what it was. It was the power that I felt from those stories. Those people were powerful. Here were people who lived in hell, like I had, my own personal hell, and had risen up. Nobody pulled them up. People had tried all their lifetimes by cajoling, by threatening, by promising. Jails and divorces and mental institutions hadn't gotten them to change one iota. And yet through the process of a loving friend, each one of them, through love given without reservation, each one of them chose to search within themselves for the power of God. I wanted power. I wanted to be a powerful person. I wanted to have what the, those people have. I wanted to become powerful. I was what is called an obsessive compulsive person. I obsessed about things. My mind was obsessed about myself and about eating and about achieving and getting. And I acted out compulsively all these thoughts. The dictionary defines obsessions as the repetitive thinking of an irrational thought, a total preoccupation with one thing. I was preoccupied with myself and eating and getting all I can. A compulsion is defined as the repetitive doing of an irrational act even though it brings no satisfaction. They bring it temporarily, but ultimately we know that the big book talks about it and calls it the ultimate remorse. Thoughts become obsessive and activities become compulsive when their underlying or unconscious purpose is to deny or erase painful emotional realities such as guilt, anxiety, shame, loneliness, or emptiness. In a sense, it is safer or more comfortable for the individual to think the preoccupying thought or perform the ritualized action than to face the disturbing reality squarely and deal with it in a straightforward manner. It is like a battery that uses all its energy in thinking about one thing or a narrow range of things whether it be what I'm eating or too much I'm eating, and that's what Emmett Fox was talking about. 
He says, if you keep your eye on how much you weigh and how much you look and what, do you, what size and what you should eat, if you keep your eye on that, that's what's going to govern your life. But you, if you keep your eye on God's will, if you keep your eye on creating, on choosing, on loving, on giving, then those things will disappear. They just will go away. You don't have time for them. What we have is as children, we live with personal histories that are full of painful memories. Many people protect themselves and try to take care of themselves in obsessive or compulsive ways <coughs> without even realizing they're doing it. <coughs> what happens is, as a child, I had a painful childhood. A lot of people have painful childhoods, and I think we all have painful childhood experiences, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Sometimes we have painful childhood experiences even though we had loving parents who tried to mold us in what they believed was right for them, which maybe was right for them, but not for us. Whatever the case may be, whether through loving parents or crazy parents, we tried to protect ourselves. We got a message in life that life is terrible and we're bad. All of us got that message, and we, we try to protect ourselves. Instead of being given the opportunity to look at life and say, well, maybe it's bad sometimes, and maybe it's good sometimes. Let me look into this. And so we look into it. And we grow up and mature, and we say, yes, there's good and bad things. And sometimes I'm not so good, and sometimes I'm terrific. And that's the way it is. We see it only through one perspective. Lewis Carroll said through a looking glass darkly. Everything is dark to us. We walk around with a cloud over our heads. And everything comes in that perspective. And what does a child do? What does anybody do when they're threatened? They protect themselves. They say, life is painful and I'm going to be hurt. And what can I do to protect myself from being hurt? Because what's worse than being hurt is to not know from what direction the hurt's going to come or when it's going to come. The fear of the hurt is worse than the hurt. So how do we deal with the unknown out there when the message is you're going to be hurt? The way we deal with it is the way not to be hurt is to hurt myself first. Because if I'm hurting myself, then nobody else could hurt me. And so we build up our wall and we, we learn behaviors and methodology to control ourselves. It says, I'll get me before you get me. The, the validity of that is that if I get me, I always know I can stop getting me. See? So the theory is, if I hurt me, I can stop. But if you hurt me, I never know when you're going to do it. I can't stop you. So that's how it works, except as we grow older, it sounds so stupid to say, I'm hurting me. So we blame everybody else. They say, you make me feel bad. When you do that, it hurts me. You remind me of somebody, and therefore I feel terrible when I'm around you. This happened to me when I'm three. And when you're 33, you're still feeling it. You know, I'm afraid of this, and that bothers me there, and so forth. And we create this whole wall of a facade, it's like a studio set, 
so we don't have to deal with reality. And pretty soon we lose the idea of what caused it. We don't even remember what caused it. Or that it's phony. All we know is we get the feeling, we react, and we have lost the sense to create in our lives. And we feel out of control. And the truth is, we are very much in control. It's just like we've got a broken record. You know, you ever see a record go around when there's a little there and it plays the same thing over that's what we are we're just broken record and all we got to do is just lift it up move it over a little bit never knew that all we got to do is say hey i don't have to do that all the time i can do something else and say, but it's so painful and what we're saying is i'm not willing to get i'm not willing to let go of my control pain for that unknown pain and the truth is if you let go of it, you'll find out that the story you got as a child that life is terrible is not true. It ain't terrible, and you're not bad. Matter of fact, it's pretty nice. And as you go through the program, you begin to say to yourself eventually, you know what? Life's pretty good, and I ain't so bad. As a matter of fact, life is good, and I'm good. All of a sudden, you take this attitude, and people look at you and say, boy, that guy's sick. He thinks life's good. You know, and what a what a sick person he thinks he's good. And people try to stop you. They say, no, no, that's not the way. You know, we they call it sometimes they have it. They call it fat serenity in a way. I'd rather be fat and serene than sin and anxiety. You know, of course you can be thin and serene too. But the point is, what we're here for. Is the power to have happiness and wellness in our lives, to have a quality in our lives, to find joy in the process of living, not in the process of eating or not eating. If we let it go, it'll all happen because it was natural in the first place. The obsessions and compulsions are driven by the individual's need to deny the reality of painful memories and emotions and to deny the destructive effects of the thoughts and behaviors themselves. The stronger the need to deny these painful facts of life, the stronger the obsession or compulsion grows until the thoughts and actions seem to be out of control. In reality, their purpose is control. Control and suppression of painful emotional and personal experiences. Food is probably the most compulsively abused substance in our culture. Excessive eating is followed by self-hate and despair, which often trigger further bouts of eating. To many, in many cases, the individual becomes bulimic, vomiting and abusing laxatives, diet pills, and diuretics after consuming tremendous amounts of food all at one sitting. Combination of gorging followed by purging can bring about disfiguring bodily changes and even death. But the urge to deny the original underlying emotions and the consequences of obsessive thoughts and compulsive actions continues to motivate the individual into further excesses. Social isolation and loneliness strengthen obsessions and compulsions so that eventually one's entire life comes to evolve around thoughts of food and behaviors involving food. Emmett Fox said the same thing. 
And of course, most of our meetings deal directly with that. They're, they revolve around thoughts of food and behaviors involving food, instead of just dropping it all together. I have no objection to people who have abstinence. It's fine. But it should be kept in its proper priority. And as soon as abstinence becomes the reason for life, as the French call it, the reason for living, and one's self-esteem is equated to how much they ate and how long they ate that. Instead of one's self-esteem is in how do you relate to other people. You could have come to a meeting, and as long as you have X number of days of, quote, abstinence, which means eating a certain way, which is what a diet is, as long as you have so many days of dieting, you're okay. You could have robbed the bank, raped the neighbor, you know, stolen the car to get there, but you're okay as long as you eat a certain way. And you can get up at the meeting and say, you know, I've been in this program X years and I've maintained and abstained perfectly, you know, but I just want you to know I shot my wife. And say, well, you can understand. Go make amends, you know. There's only one amend that I know of that the big book really talks about, and it's not apologizing. It's being what you are is the amend, not what you say. It's what you have become that is the ultimate amend. It's not what you eat, but what you are. It's the quality of you, not the quantity you put in you. I know people who find it difficult to extend the limited amount of energies that they can muster in the beginning to deal with what they weigh. It's more important to learn how to relate to a husband or a parent or a child. I think I have more calls from people I sponsor on how they deal with their parents or a spouse than how they deal with food. We just never talk about food. I've never asked them what they ate. They never asked you what I eat and they all lose weight and keep it off. Somehow, the way they deal with their parents and their child and children and their husbands and wives and people they work with and talk about and share about that works, works better than calling in their food. Calling in their husband is a lot better. <laughs> I think that um, in the early stages of an eating disorder, turning to or turning away food may bring marked relief. And that's what it does. People abstain. They feel this marked relief. Pleasure will follow and other fulfilling sensations. You know, people look at you, oh, you look terrific, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. You can buy a dress now. It's a different size. But eventually, nothing remains except a dull, dreary, bleak existence. The individual has blunted her feelings and perceptions rather than face a painful inner experience. Whether you're overeating or controlling eating, the case is you are dealing with eating. Your eye is on that. The compulsive overeater anesthetizes and only tangentially becomes aware of feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. What we need is a more humanistic commitment to faith and each individual's inherent goodness and potential for growth. We have to understand 
that there's a God that resides in all of us and that we have not been able to get in touch with that God, mainly because we don't even know that that God exists. We have always thought that God is out there, not within us. Who am I to have a God within me? What supreme ego is one to say that they are a part of God? And yet we all are. We all have within us that unique quality to achieve the unachievable, to become, instead of just looking from the outside in, I remember as a little boy, I used to look at magazines, I used to sell magazines from door to door. And I remember looking at the covers of those magazines. And on the cover, there was always a picture of some good-looking guy with shiny white teeth sitting in a convertible with golf clubs and tennis rackets or something lying in a convertible and a beautiful girl leaning on a car smiling at him. And I always thought, boy, wouldn't that be nice? And I was always told, you'll never be that person. You will never be that kind of a person. And it wasn't having the attention or having the convertible, or I thought it was. But for years, I would get convertible. And I would have those sporting things in my car. And I would have some girl leaning on the car talking to me. I thought that was it. And it was it for about 10 or 15 minutes. And when I drove away, I felt like shit again. <laughs> and I... And I finally got to see it wasn't what he was doing it was what he was feeling that the picture was portraying he was a person who felt good about himself and felt good about his life and the person was attracted to him not because of his convertible or his shiny teeth or his thin body or whatever it was it was because people like to be around people who feel good about themselves if they in turn feel good about themselves if you feel terrible that's the last thing in the world you want to be around that's why a lot of people come to OA not to get anything, but to get away from the happy people out there. They can't stand it. <laughs> Mark Twain said there is nothing as terrible as a good example. And what we hate is somebody who's happy because it makes us even feel worse about ourselves. When we think everybody's like we are, it's okay. But when we come around a person who feels good, it's terrible. I remember when I was in, in high school, the guy that aggravated me the most, that I envied the most, was the guy who didn't care whether people liked him or envied him. It was the one who seemed to go through life just happy. And everybody wanted to be his friend, and he could care less if people wanted to be his friend. I wanted to be like that. Because he was he had an inner happiness. And it's funny because the, the most popular guy in my school was as fat as I was. He didn't know he was fat. He didn't know he was supposed to be unhappy like me. And that even made me feel worse. I hated him. I know his name to this day. I knew him when I was five years old. And I haven't seen him since I'm 13. I hate his guts. <laughs> <laughs> there is a saying in the book, uh, uh, one of my favorite books called If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him. It says, search we must. The important thing is to begin. But remember, setting out does not by itself guarantee success. There is beginning, but there is also persevering. That is beginning again and again and again. We begin again because the big book tells us that we're going to have a spiritual awakening. We're going to be reborn. A completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. 
That's what the program promises us, a new beginning. And how do new beginning people begin? They begin very difficult, you know, slowly. They begin and stumble a lot. You ever see a child get up and walk? You know, stumbles and falls and everything. That's how we are. We're people who begin a new life. We stumble and fall a lot. And we say, we understand that. We understand how you can have mistakes. We understand that all of a sudden you're not going to be on time when you've always been late because you come to OA. You'll, sometimes you'll make mistakes. We understand that uh, if you're a dishonest person <coughs> by working this program, you're not going to overnight be an honest person. But you'll work at it, you'll try, you'll make your amends and so forth. We understand that. We understand that if you've been a terrible spouse, it's not going to change overnight. You're not going to love that person be terrific, but it'll get better and better. You'll work at it. We understand that because you weren't able to deal with your parents and hated them, that it's not going to change all of a sudden you're going to love them, but you'll be able to deal with them a little bit more, better and better. We understand all these things. We even tell you in the beginning, nobody's perfect in this program. We don't expect perfection, except in one area. We expect you to eat perfectly. Because if you don't eat perfectly, quote, break your abstinence, then what happens? You're bad. You're a sinner. I was telling some people last night that the way I got over breaking my abstinence is very simple. The way not to break abstinence is change the definition each day. So, <laughs> OA has become, to many people, a substitute for a church or a synagogue, become a substitute religion. I thought so much of that at one time that uh, I was going to form a church called the Church of the Anonymous. <laughs> and we wouldn't have any real church, you'd just send in donations, you know. <laughs> the church would be anonymous, you couldn't find us. <laughs> and uh, I thought that that would really help the program a lot. I, th I still think it's a good idea, I just don't have the guts to do it. <laughs> Although I did have a lot of offers for people who wanted franchises to be bishop of Arizona and one guy wanted bishop of New Jersey, I would take bids out for bishop. I was going to be pope, you know. <laughs> but um, I was going to uh, sit in the seat of, uh, of St. Bill Wilson and um, uh, going to fossilize the true word. There's a very famous uh, psychologist um, did a whole program on uh, a research program for many years on OA, and her findings are very interesting. It was written up in a, a recent book published uh, called Obesity in the Family, published in 1984, and her research was really uh, very interesting. <coughs> she said... Uh, that the use of a religious framework to describe the rituals of dieting is one of the major perspectives of social analysis of group dieting. Um, as soon as I get to my, yeah. It says, group dieting organizations are spiritual, quote, religious movements attempting to re-socialize obese people into a morally acceptable body type. That people are morally bad, we look at. Something the matter with us. The, quote, ideal of thinness, the god of thinness, 
is the ultimate value system revered by group members and used as an ideology for participation in the rituals of dieting. Reverence for the ideal of thinness encouraged them to seek salvation from their eating sins by participating in the holy ritual of cleansing themselves of fat. The dieting organizations uh, meetings emphasize the worship of thinness and deliverance from the evils of fatness. You ever get that only meetings, you know? It's evil to break your abstinence. You are punished. You cannot talk. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. And we believe it of ourselves that if we don't eat the way we committed ourselves to eat, as if that is the criteria. I had a guy that uh, wanted me to be his hair sponsor because he was going bald, you know. He wanted to commit his hair to me every day. Until he noticed I was losing some and he figured I wasn't a good sponsor. You know. Diet has passed through four processions during the rituals. The per first procession was the initiation into the group uh, diet meeting. A rite separating the dieters from the prof profane outside world, the normies out there. Those people who don't know how sick they are. A second procession led the members to the paying of alms. You know, just like church, we have a tradition. We pass the right, around. Just like your church. And if you really sin, you put in a little bit more money. <laughs> and don't we say that? We say that, don't we? Just think of the money you spent eating. And so we're saying, just think of the money you spent sinning. If you put it in here, you won't sin. It said, uh, uh, the third procession was the anxious walk to, of the judgment of each meeting with a scale as the totem of the ideal of thinness, passing judgment on the dieters. The scale can be an angel or a devil because it either cleansed of cheating sins or exalted dieting efforts. Weight gain was degrading, showing a progressive sinning. We know if you put on weight or if you haven't lost, you're not working the program. You're bad. You're not working the program. I know people look at me that they've seen me, you know, haven't seen me for a year or two. They don't see me. They look at see, has he put on any weight? You know, what's going on? Looks a little heavier than last time. You know, he's thinning. Or he looks a little thinner than last time. He's okay, you know. Meetings began with the ritualized chatting between dieters, which included proselytizing testimonials of faith in the weight loss progr program, confessions of goodness or badness, preferably badness. You know, we love people to get up and say, had a lot of trouble lately, I've been eating, I need help. God, everybody runs to them. <laughs> Ever hear anybody cut up and say, I feel terrific. Everything's going well in my life. I'd like to help you. Anybody run up to them afterwards and say, God, I really like that. I want to be part of your life. I don't want to be around that person. Boy, anybody that says that they're well, they're sick. <laughs> it says that this is followed by a formal lecture sermon by the group leader. This healer pastor was self-styled expert whose major qualification was faith in the group dieting plan and personal success in weight loss within the organization. There are, they preach the ideology of slimness. Autobiographers, storytellers, 
entertainers, and solemn preachers. After the sermon, there was a set of responsive readings from passages of the organization scriptures. Announcement of weight loss and gain, with the leader giving legitimate and illegitimate excuses for some of the gains. Anyhow, it goes on and on, but the main conclusion it has is that by treating fatness as sickness, they imply that the sick role is fatalistically imposed upon obese people, leading to unnecessary perceptional and personal disturbances, sexual problems, anxiety, and depressions, which are more a consequence of the stigmatization than the direct effects of being overweight. Bad enough to be overweight, it's worse to come to an organization that, that points out to you how bad you are because you're overweight. Healing is measured by the number of pounds a diet is shed. There, thus, there is a simultaneous presence of both the medical and religious models in the group dieting interactions, and the stigma of obesity is used to condemn the obese as sinners as well as to direct them towards healing themselves. Well, anyhow, I can go on and on. But the point is that we're not alone in seeing ourselves that way, in looking at ourselves as people who are sick. I don't like the term sick. I don't like the term mental illness. I think what has happened is that we have deviated from a mature way of developing. We are deviates. We are mental deviates. Not sick, not crazy, just mental deviates who need to be straightened out. That's why we call it a disorder. It is a disordering of our lives. And so we are given the opportunity to reorder our lives. If you want what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. What we have is recovery. And recovery is not necessarily measured by weight loss. Recovery is measured by what you were compared to what you are. And if that is recovery, then haven't we all recovered a little bit? Haven't we all begun what we came here for? Instead of looking at the winners and losers in this program, aren't we all winners? And isn't that a better way to approach, approach people and to offer people something who have come here with low self-esteem rather than contribute to their low self-esteem by setting them up for failure, which is all abstinence does, when it is the, the criteria. But to set themselves up, but why not set themselves up for winning, for achieving, for some of us for the first time in our lives, and when I take somebody through the steps and I tell them, you are recovering, and I'll say, but I haven't lost a pound. I'll say, that isn't what's going to happen. You now have the tools. You now have the ability to energize this power. And that's all we promise you. That's all we ever tell you. We will give you the spiritual tools of recovery. We will give you the steps which enable you to get to a point of a new beginning rather than an end. So we all have begun a journey when we walk into OA if we have gotten into the steps and if we are guided by the steps by somebody who looks at it 
as a source of energizing and power and achievement of God's will for us rather than as a goal of weight loss. And for those of you who want to lose weight, which I guess is everybody, the day will come if you follow this path, if you do what it says to do. Because it tells us there is a solution to your problem. And the solution will be you will become powerful. And what do powerful people do? What do people who manage their lives do when they want to lose some weight? See, no, thank you. They sit in their car when they're driving home from some meeting or some place or whatever it is, and they pass by the 7-Eleven or the donut shop, and they feel the feeling, and they know what to do. And it's not to pull in and get something to eat. They know how to change the feeling. And the day will come when being able to do that and being so involved in the joy of living that you'll turn around one day and you'll say, gee, this is loose on me and I haven't changed the way I'm eating. And, after, and you get on a scale and you lost four pounds. And you say, gee, I lost four pounds. And it's been a month, it's not fast. But I didn't even do anything. And it comes off slowly. And after a while, you don't even bother with the scale. Who cares? Other things have changed which are more important. But you will lose the weight and you will keep it off permanently and you will recover and you will succeed and we will become a program of winners and not losers and we will begin to look at this program in a new light, in a new way. And when newcomers come in, we will rush over to sit with them and talk to them. Not because we are, quote, doing service, not because that's what you're supposed to do. Not because somebody tells you that you should go over. But because you feel good when you share with a newcomer. And instead of handing them a bunch of pamphlets on how to eat and, and some terms that nobody even understands what it says, we give to them the only thing that there is to give to them, us. We give to them ourselves. And a fat person who is lonely and withdrawn and totally demoralized walks into a meeting and wonders, why is this person talking to me? And the person says to them, I know what you're thinking, why am I talking to you? <laughs> and I gotta tell you, the reason I'm talking to you is because I feel good talking to you. Thank you for being here and giving me the opportunity. And you walk away shaking your head, except all of a sudden you feel good. <laughs> Somebody talked to me. Somebody listened to me. Somebody who shared with me, and that person, that beautiful person who doesn't even look thin, shared with me a whole new attitude. And boy, if she could feel the way she feels not being thin, then I could feel that way. And you go back the next week or the next day feeling a little quicker, like, why the hell am I going back there? And you feel a little better. And a little better, pretty soon somebody says to you, how'd you feel the last couple of days? I feel pretty good. I like coming here. And you say, that's what we have to offer you. Say, but when am I going to lose some weight? You say, just keep coming back and keep sharing with people and keep giving us an opportunity to share. 
and you'll get a sponsor. Now, what is the sponsor going to do? Tell me what to do? No. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. What they'll do is share with you what they do. And if you want to do it, fine. If you want what they have. Well, she's not so thin, that person. But what is she? What is the personality of her? What is the character of her? What's the demeanor of her? Well, that's what we're here for. We're here to take ourselves out of this cesspool of oblivion. The truth is, we don't feel bad because we're fat. We're fat to justify feeling bad. If we weren't fat, we'd be something else. And if we're fat to justify feeling bad, what's going to happen when we feel good? We'll lose the weight. Because we don't need fat to justify feeling bad when you don't feel bad. If you can overeat and not feel bad, you'll stop overeating. It's just that simple. The day will come where you will say to yourself, not that I broke my abstinence or that I binged or I got to hang my head in shame. You'll say to yourself as you get up one morning, I kind of ate too much yesterday. I think I'll eat a little less today and go on your way. And that'll be it. You will react sanely and normally and you'll find that this has happened automatically. Your eye will not be on how you eat and what you eat, your eye will be on how you're living. You'll be too busy having fun in life to worry about what you weigh. We have to create a program of winners, not losers. And we cannot use terms such as abstinence as a setup. Now, I don't want to tell you that that means that everybody should just go out and ignore what they eat. I'm not telling you to ignore what you eat but deal with it in a rational way. And I know people say, I need discipline. I don't need discipline. I need power to discipline. And when I get power to discipline, I don't have to discipline anymore. But the discipline comes automatically. I don't have to tell myself, now, Bill, you can eat this and you shouldn't eat that anymore. Any more than I tell myself, now get up and brush your teeth and comb your hair and shave and take a shower. Do you abstain from from uh, dirt, you abstain from uh, uh, too much shopping, you abstain from anger. If we're going to abstain from things, let's abstain from things in a proper perspective. Maybe your energy has to be spent more dealing with people than dealing with what you look like. People will love you when you become lovable. You'll have all the friends you want when you become a friend. You get all you want out of life when you give everything you got. The only thing you got to give is you. And the only way you give yourself is not the time you spend, but the quality of you. Sometimes the three or five seconds it takes for an elevator to go up, you can smile at a person, say good morning, and make their day. And that's worth four ounces of anything. You know, sometimes the way you drive your car and let somebody get in front of you, you don't get rewards for that. Nobody notices it. Somehow you just feel good about yourself. Somebody's in your parking place and you say, ah, the hell with it, and you go park someplace else. Nobody notices it. You can't tell anybody, hey, I abstained from fighting with somebody in my parking place today. <laughs> I got a parking place sponsor. Something like that to deal with that. <laughs> but I think that's as important, if not more important, than abstaining from compulsive overeating, because I have no doubt that when you deal with anger, righteous anger that way by just getting rid of it, you will abstain that day without any thought or effort on your part.
that when you get up in the morning and the kids are driving you crazy and you just say to yourself, wait a second, I don't have to buy into this anymore. And you just tell them, you're all crazy, go do what you want, you don't bother me. And, you, and they look at you like, geez, she didn't buy into it today, you know. And your abstinence will come so much easier. And you can look at your parents and you smile to yourself and say, you know what, they ain't going to change. And that's the way it is. They're crazy. They'll always be crazy. And, and, and I understand why they got that way, because they had parents and they had a life and things went a certain way and they had despair and disappointment in, this, in their life. And they came uh, to a country or to a city or to a state with great hopes and they went into marriages at young ages and looking forward to wonderful things. And here they are 30, 40, 50 years later and their, their life has been empty. You can understand their anger and frustration and how they take it out on the only person they could take it out, their children sometimes, and each other, and themselves. And instead of hate and loathing, you just feel compassion for them. And you can say it. You say, you know what? I really understand why you're so angry at me. It's not right. It's not wrong. I can understand it. I can understand the things that happened in my childhood and how disappointing I was to my parents. And, and I can say, well, they made me that way. But the point is, I was disappointing to them. Regardless of who made me that way, I was disappointing. And in their disappointment, and in their disappointment in their lives, where they saw as they got days older and years older, their dreams going down the drain, and all they had to look forward to was unhappiness and emptiness in their life. And they did not have the spiritual basis that many of us have found in this program. Uh, they beat themselves and beat us, either physically or emotionally. We can understand that. And we can, we can conjure up something that we were never taught, that nobody has shown us before. We can create, we have the power to create this quality called compassion. We have compassion for people all of a sudden, for people who we've only had anger and hate and resentment at. We can express to them compassion and love because we're filled with it. And it's amazing when, how when we get that, they change. Somehow, they're just not the same way. I had a woman I sponsored call me up, and she has, uh, I guess, from what she's related to me, very crazy parents, and she was going home to be with them for her 50th anniversary. And she said, I know what's going to happen. What should I do? I said, well, I said, I think you've got to sort of, one, when you know what's going to happen, so that you don't have to be disappointed that some fantasy of how your parents might be now will be different. It's still not going to be different. And she's going to and he's going to be the way they always were. So well, what do I do? I said, well, what will they do to you? And she related how her mother was going to be critical of her. Evidently, that's what always happens. And I said, it's a simple way of doing things I find is being honest. Say to her mother, mom, whatever it is, I came back here to share your 50th anniversary with love. I didn't come here to be criticized. Now I understand that part of your life is criticizing me. So I'm going to go out of the house and around the block and come back. <laughs> and when I come back, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't criticize me and go out, no matter what they say. Even if she says, I'm not going to criticize you anymore, whatever it is, go out, go down the block, and come back. And walk back in and say, well, I'm back. <laughs> and 
should criticize you again. Say, there you go, you did it again. I know I understand. But I'm going to go around the block again. <laughs> and, I, and I understand, you know, why you're that way. Because you still think of me as that child that you criticize, and probably justifiably so. And eventually it'll stop. And if it doesn't stop, at least you've dealt with it. But I guarantee you it'll stop because you won't be buying into it. Because you know that whatever it is you were, you're not. Because in this program, we have all started on the journey of becoming the kind of person we always wanted to be. And the day will come when you'll be able to say to people, like I know I can say now, I am the person, the man I always wanted to be. I am that man in the convertible. I don't have a convertible. And I don't have somebody leaning over the door or something like that. But I have the joy that that person expressed in, in their lives. I have it now. It doesn't mean that terrible things don't happen all the time. They do. There are people who are around us all the time. Their life itself has lots of problems. There is unhappiness out there. Our children, unfortunately, grow up to be what we made them. And I would like them to be what some, like somebody else's child. Except their parent would like their child to be like they think my child is. I have people, young people, who write me and say, God, it would be so wonderful to be your, your child. And I show it to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you think they appreciate me? No. <laughs> they don't know you like we do. And that's the truth. They know me. They know my bad points. And they know my good points. Uh, but they know one thing also, that I love them and I have the capacity to love them. And I express my love in, in a way that only parents can express love, the way only parents can express hate. The past doesn't wave me anymore. That uh, God has changed in my life and instead of God being a thing out there, God is a thing within me. I found it easier to deal with God when I change God from a noun to a verb, when God becomes an action, when I express God by my actions, when I, ex when I see God's wonder in the action of the nature around me and the people who are by my side and share with me. Uh, God is not a thing but a power, and a power that exists in my life and in the world out there, so that uh, I can do, uh, I can live my life as uh, Leo Bascaglia calls it, engage in the celebration of life, so that I can uh, look at life uh, as, a, as a joyful experience, and each day becomes not a road, uh, a heavy ordeal, but a new awakening. Uh, I know that uh, this is how we begin to work the steps. And this afternoon we'll go into them in explicit detail, uh, step by step, so that uh, I can share with you how I work the steps, how I live the steps the best I can, and how I sponsor people, how they sponsor me, and uh, uh, deal with the, most, the single most important problem facing any of us which is, when I feel bad, how do I get to feel good?
When I feel like eating, how do I not eat? When I feel angry, how do I stop being angry? We can deal with that very specifically in the way of how to deal with just that way so that we don't have to eat over feelings or sedate feelings, but change them. So we can deal with um, enjoying life rather than detesting it. And I just want to leave you with this um, little poem that I like to share, which I guess uh, more and more expresses my life. It says, every day is a happening that's meant to celebrate. Every day is a holiday, no matter what the date. Friendship, love and laughter, dreams and songs to sing. These are the very special gifts that any day can bring. So never mind the calendar. Each morning brings your way a world of joy to celebrate. So let's celebrate today. Thank you. You know, it's interesting about that serenity prayer because uh, if you ever listen to what that serenity prayer requests of God, it requests serenity to accept, courage to change, and wisdom to know. Serenity, courage, and wisdom. Nowhere does it request God to do anything for us, but to give us exactly what what we're talking about here, which is uh, a feeling and uh, an interpretation of that feeling. So we get to feel a certain way and then we interpret it and we're able to act upon that in a way different than what we're really saying in the serenity prayer is, uh, God, give me power to accept, to change, and to know. Uh, and if we begin to look at our program as a quest for power, things begin to take on a different kind of perspective. Uh, in the chapter, We Agnostics, <coughs> it tells us that uh, we are suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience could conquer. And Usually when people, when I talk to people about that and, and the steps and so forth, they'll say, yes, but how can I uh, think about steps? How can I hear God? How can I do these things if I'm eating? Somehow, it's as if, you know, God doesn't work with people who will eat. At meal, mealtime, God takes a hiatus and uh, uh, doesn't function. And what they'll usually say is, what about the drunk? I mean, don't they tell the alcoholic that he's got to stop drinking in order to work the program? And the answer is no. Not only do they not tell the alcoholic that, but on the contrary, if you read the chapter, Working with Others, 
in the big book, it'll tell you that uh, very often the way to work with the alcoholic, it says sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge before you even approach him. In other words, you don't get him when he's sober because when somebody's not drinking, I don't mean sober, I mean not drinking, when somebody's not drinking, they don't care about that. They say, oh, I'm, I'm, see, I'm not, I haven't had a drink for two days. I can handle it. And, uh, and that really shows up in our program. You try to get somebody who comes in, and two weeks later they got their abstinence, and they got their food sponsor, and they've lost five pounds in two weeks. You try to talk to them about program. They don't want to talk about program. I know uh, I mentioned, somebody mentioned about the HAL program. Uh, I remember the fellow who started that HAL program when I first met him, and he came to me after I spoke, and he said, you're telling me I'm doing it wrong? I've lost 200 pounds. And I said, how can I tell you you're doing it wrong when you lost 200 pounds? When you put it back on, I'll tell you you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and... You can't tell somebody when they're, quote, losing weight and they think that's what they came here for, that that's not the program. I would rather get somebody who, the first day there, when they have no abstinence, I work so much better with people the day after a binge, and I don't have to wait until they, quote, dry out. It says, sometimes it is, waste, it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk, unless he is ugly and the family needs your help, even then sometimes. Wait for the end of the spree, or at least a lucid interval. Then, if he wants to quit for good, and if he will go to any extreme to do so, then you can work with him. And I think from most of our experiences, we'll know that the time where most willing and ready to do anything is the day after we have binged. That's the good time to get a person. So, and, and, and I know no scientific evidence uh, that indicates that we have to dry out from sugar. To dry out from sugar, you're going to die. You need that in your body, and you get it from vegetables and other things for sure. But there's no such thing. There's no such thing you got to dry out of alcohol. The only time you don't talk to an alcoholic is if he's a skid row bum and his mind's gone. That's true. But we're not alcoholics. It doesn't affect us that way. Although we would like to, in our grandiosity, believe so. And many of us think that the sugar affects us to that extent. And I have no doubt sugar affects us in lots of ways. It locks teeth. It puts on weight. tastes good. You know, we like it and all those kind of things. And sometimes it affects mood swings. Certainly true. But there is not one iota of scientific evidence that any food has a craving-creating addiction. Doesn't exist in food. And if you want to believe that, that's okay by me. I mean, I can care less what you want to believe. And if that helps you do anything, fine. But whether or not it's true isn't important. The point is that even if that's true, only a spiritual experience will conquer that. And the sooner you get to it, the better. And you don't have to wait days, weeks, months. I, I know people say, well, I'm on abstinence, I feel better. Well, that's true. When I'm on abstinence, I feel better until I get to feel worse. 
which eventually always comes because if if the premise is correct that we're here because we feel bad about ourselves and we have this programming then we will eventually take anything that's good and the better it is the worse we screw it up so we take those simple pleasures in life like food uh, sex relationships uh, achievement you know financial achievement whatever and those very thing relationships with our parents and children the things that are most basic in our lives and those are the very things that we utilize to make life miserable it is not a passing thing that makes us miserable it is not that we can't wear a size so-and-so clothes it is a combination of all these things so if only a spiritual experience will conquer this why are we so busy trying to conquer it by controlling it the big book says that in the chapter we agnostics it says lack of power that is our dilemma we had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves somehow we take the words greater than ourselves to mean outside of ourselves out there doesn't say a power out there it's a power greater than ourselves which exists out there and within us too obviously but where and how are we to find this power and then it says well that's exactly what this book is about its main object is to enable you to find a power which will greater than yourself which will solve your problem what's the problem it's unmanageability in your life so we have to find a power by which we can manage and control our lives and as we begin to look at this perspective of a journey this uh, uh, what do you have that we want and are willing to go to any lanes to get it say what I have is power and the power enables me to share and to feel and to do and and create and all those things and having that power I can now go ahead and do all kinds and manner of things that I was unable to do before I'm able to stop doing something that I feel like doing my little girl uh, said to me uh, several months ago one day we were talking about something and she said well I can't stop that I said why not she said well I can't change the way I feel and I said wrong that's exactly the basic premise that got me in trouble all my life I thought I couldn't change the way I feel and if I felt a certain way all my life the thing to do instead of changing the life out there was to feel differently and I had to have the power to change how I feel and it says well that's what this book is about because of my own willpower alone I had never been able to change it because I wanted to change the way I did and behaved and felt I always wanted to change the way I felt and I tried it by my willpower and the trouble is I always thought my willpower will change that out there if I exercise willpower you'd stop doing something so I feel better, see? and 